0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number eight of the Road to Indy Insider podcast. My name is Rob Howden. Thrilled that you're tuning in to uh, another edition of the podcast. My guest today, the editor and publisher of MotorsportsTribune.com, Joey Barnes, also a contributor to IndyCar.com. Joey, thank you so much for for tuning in.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. This is going to be a
0: blast. Uh, A lot to talk about, of course. Uh, uh, Joey and I are going to sit down and do our breakdown podcast of... The recent event at Iowa, round 10 of the Indy Lights Championship presented by Cooper Tires. Of course, uh, Iowa Speedway in Newton, Iowa, 7 eighths of a mile, bad fast racetrack. They call it the fastest short track on the planet for a reason. Uh, as I said, 7 eighths of a mile, progressive banking, 12 degrees on the bottom, 14 degrees on the top, and the, the straightaways are banked as well. Uh, Joy, one of these tracks, I think... You know, people talk about it maybe being too big for USF 2000, even though they were there last year. I think it's a really perfect racetrack, of course, for the Verizon IndyCar Series. But I really, really like it uh, for Indy Lights as well. I think it really stretches these guys and pushes them to to be able to handle what is an unbelievably quick track.
1: Absolutely. I agree 100%. Uh, Especially when you look at the concept of the fact that this race... Spans 100 laps, and you've really got to worry about tire degradation. You can yeah. conserve early and, and get on them late, and it, you can really put this race more in the drivers' hands. So we see comers and goers more than we would see at other tracks.
0: It's interesting you say tire deg from the beginning because that obviously was a, a key component of the race weekend. Uh, and when we we always talk about training, right? The road to indies about training. So we're getting these young drivers dialed in. Well, you think about the the Iowa Corn 300. Tire degradation was massive, the way those tires fell, fell off uh, with the Firestone. So we give these guys in Indy Lights a little opportunity to understand what it's like for the tire to kind of go off uh, before the end of the weekend, or the end of the race, rather. Let's jump in now to practice. I think one of the key points of the weekend was the fact that Indy Lights hadn't had a chance to test at Iowa either. So the teams and drivers getting essentially a 45-minute opportunity to be on the racetrack and really go through Probably Joey, three stages of testing, get get on the track, get a feel for it, dial the baseline a little bit, then do some longer race runs to be ready for the the main event on uh, on Sunday morning, and then at the very end we saw guys bolting on on new Coopers to do really a single qualifying simulation. For the most part, the running was all focused on being good for the race.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think what was so integral and important about this process is to for guys like Pato Award who, rookie in this series, doesn't have maybe the same experience that Colton Herta has. He's got a year up on him. And Dalton Kellett, obviously, another Andretti Autosport teammate. There are some guys that just are way more seasoned. So for guys like Victor Franzoni, who did really well in that practice, if I remember, and, yeah. and Potto Ward, I mean, this was a very crucial practice, especially for – Indianapolis is a huge deal for, for these guys. But take nothing away from just how difficult a circuit like Iowa is. And for my money, I think they handled it really well.
0: The interesting thing, thing about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Freedom One Hundred is a lot of guys will tell you it feels like a road course to a certain extent with four, you know, with four left-hand corners because you get a long run into the corner. It's more of a flat kind of just a lightly banked corner as opposed to, you know, swinging it. What do they say? You you tie a a rock around a stone and swing it around. That's what it's like rolling around Iowa because it's just so fast and and with so many bumps, the drivers having to get really used to it. And, and I think you brought up a great point, Joey. Two of the drivers who really stepped up in that practice session are guys that really had never been there before in anything that quick. Uh, as you said, Pato Award, who had raced there in 2015 in Pro Mazda, and Victor Franz only, the only time he'd been on the racetrack is testing uh, the new Tatis PM18. So a couple of guys with not a lot of experience took to the track pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting when you look at somebody like Victor, right, because he's never really been known as an oval specialist, and he didn't look like he started to come into his own until last year at Gateway in the Pro Mazda uh, Championship. And when you look forward and you look how he did at Indy, you're like, okay, he did solidly. He wasn't necessarily up there banging with the elite, but you look at what he did after his Road America win coming into Iowa with a little bit of momentum, a little bit of confidence, And to see how he took to this Oval, I'm really excited to see what he can do for the rest of the year and just to see what kind of growth we're going to get out of him, especially when we hit, you know, gateway coming up on the calendar here in the coming month too.
0: I think that the races that are, are coming up in the schedule are the ones that probably will start playing for Victor Franzoni and really, the development of a rookie driver at any level is kind of a common trend through the Mazda Road to Indy. It always takes the the young guys. Like if you go to USF 2000, we're seeing Rasmus Lint starting to come to the forefront right now. And, you know, you'll see some other guys do that in pro Mazda. And that's simply because the rookies get in, they get comfortable with the race car, the team, the series, and mid-seasons when they only start stepping up. Now, Victor knows the series. <laughs> he's pretty comfortable with the team. So he's just really getting used to what is a an unbelievably – a high quality, high horsepower race car in the Delora IL-15. And I think you're right that here's a guy that I think we're going to see get better and better. Now, again, his biggest issue, probably the fact that they're a single car team, doesn't have as much information every weekend. But I was very impressed, not only with Victor throughout the weekend in terms of how he did in the the main event, the race itself, which we'll get to, but he was very honest after qualifying and, and saying straight up, I just didn't let it all hang out because he was so good in practice but just didn't, I don't think he committed 100% in the qualifying session, which led to him being seventh on the grid.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. I I think what's interesting there and uh, that I took away from qualifying, uh, in the history, the last few years of this race, the pole sitters only won once, right? And so when I looked at that, I was like, okay, well, you could start further back in this field, based on what history tells us, and you can just take care of your tires and methodically move, because if you've got a car that's built for for race trim and not qualifying trim and, and has better air pressure for the long run, you can really make a move on these guys. But, you know, as that's what history tells us, and we can't lean on that too much, as we found out. But I think that what's interesting here is that somebody like Victor starting back there, he got a chance to learn the track maybe more so than being in traffic and having to race guys necessarily right out of the get-go. And I think that's so important being a rookie is you want to start at one of the bookends of the field, maybe not necessarily in the middle, especially when you got guys like Colton Herta and Santi Rudia and Aaron that's hanging out there that got all this experience and aren't afraid to make those kind of daring moves early.
0: Yeah. We'll, we'll jump into the race in a, in a bit. I think you're right. That was one of the interesting things that, uh, I think we'll 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 shelve that for later because the interesting thing about that is he starts at the tail of the field and doesn't really able to move forward because this this field is just so competitive. I know it's only seven cars, but they're so evenly matched. And we'll talk more about the race itself. Now, to cap off practice, as you said, Pato Award ended up on top. Very good at the end. I think watching the times more throughout the middle of the session, really more indicative of what we were going to see as opposed to, you know, slapping on fresh rubber and seeing what it can do to the handling situation. Because once we got to the end, when everyone went on, on fresh sticker Cooper tires, you know, late in that 45 minute run to do their qualifying simulations, Pata went P1, which he was able to hold through the entire weekend. But to me, it was the Bellardi cars that probably reacted the most positively to the, the fresh rubber they were struggling with what appeared to be um, some some uh, oversteer, uh, rolling into the corners and getting over the bumps. Man, with the fresh rubber, boom, they went second and third. I think that uh, I think the fresh rubber was really able to. I don't want to say mask the issues they had, but it really kind of it kind of solved them very quickly. And then, of course, they were hoping that they had a good race car for the main. That's yeah, something that, that
1: whenever I caught you in the inside the track, and we got to talking a little bit about just a little bit of it lights. That's something you did mention, and I thought it was kind of fascinating because that was a concept kind of leaning in that naturally, whenever you're looking at something, and most of us journos, we look at it and we're like, oh, he's quickest on this chart. They must have fixed it. And sometimes you just don't take into account how crucial fresh rubber is, especially yeah. when you look at other tracks on this, on this calendar. You're like, okay, well, maybe... Maybe that is the speed, and that is indicative of it. But with a place like Iowa, with that tire degradation being so crucial, as we talked about earlier, I think that it's important to, to mention that, yeah, that you get fresh rubber on there, and you can mask any sort of issue, especially at a place like Iowa.
0: You know, in looking at practice and kind of rolling through qualifying in the main, and we'll talk more about it, is the fact that when it came to race pace, one of the, one of the surprises to me was the fact that Dalton Kellett was just a little bit off. You know, Dalton's the kind of guy that normally comes to an oval track And he loves racing the ovals and we know he's going to be right there. I would coming in. I would have said that he would have been challenging for a podium. Um, He wasn't able to do that. Ended up finishing the fifth spot. I think I was surprised a little bit that he wasn't quite on the pace this particular weekend.
1: Yeah. Honestly, talking to him in the lead up to the race, you could see that he had that focus about him. And I can't imagine, I mean, this is his third year in the sport or third year in the series, I should say. And he had a really good run at Indy, right? And he, yeah. we just continue to see him improve. And if, if there's a place that you're going to pick him as a dark horse favorite, you got to think it's going to be on the ovals to get the job done because he's just turned into a really good oval specialist. That said, um, I like you, I kind of expected a situation playing out. I also thought Ryan Norman might be somebody that could be a sleeper because we've seen his growth systematically through the end of last season and into this year. I mean, the Homestead test, he was phenomenal. And that's part of the reason why I kind of thought, OK, I know this is more of a bull ring and that's a mile and a half, but that's not your D-type oval, mile and a half at Homestead during the spring training test. And I thought maybe just based on that, we might see with the G loads that, that you get used to carrying at Homestead through the corners, maybe that would translate here. It didn't necessarily carry over after qualifying, but as far as qualifying went, I mean, Norman showed really good stuff. So those were my takeaways from that. Uh, I mean, honestly, I would agree 100% with Dalton. I was really shocked that their podium capabilities weren't quite there.
0: Cool. Well, we're definitely going to talk about uh, Ryan Norman when we get to the main event. Because in my, when I look at the grid of the seven drivers or the 10 that we've had so far this year, he's one of the guys I think, I don't think he gets the credit that he deserves, Ryan Norman, primarily because here's a guy with nowhere near the experience of everybody else that is in, you know, within the series in terms of coming through the carding ranks all the way through USF 2000 pro Mazda and into Indy lights. You look at Ryan Norman, only his second year in the Mazda road to Indy. He raced of course the Atlantic championship uh, in the Swift. And that's kind of a car that a lot of people have used to get some extra training, but he jumped into the deep end in Indy lights. And I, I just don't think he's given enough credit because he is, he has, as you said, he is, he has improved radically. Uh, both on the road courses and in the ovals, here's a guy that, you know, at the very end of the main and we'll get there was putting the pressure on Ruti and was closing up at the end. I just, I, I think he's just one of those guys that just deserves a bit more credit and just keeps getting better every time we get on track.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know we got to move forward with the race, but one thing that, that he – one person that when I look at Ryan Norman, he reminds me of is is the reigning champion and Kyle Kaiser. You know, Kaiser needed three years, methodical growth each and every year. And I look at Ryan Norman, because he doesn't have maybe the same experience as guys like Colton Herta and Pato and Santi coming in, I look at somebody like Ryan as somebody that – you look at year three, he could podium – all the way out and get himself into a championship, especially when you look at the field and how stacked it was when Kaiser won. We've got one that you could argue that maybe doesn't have quite the same amount of quantity, but it certainly has got the same, if not more, quality. And I think that that can't be overstated that this is Ryan Norman doing this without that much experience against guys that are equal or more talented than the field that we saw last year. So I think it's only going to help his growth and maturity If we see him next year, come in year three, know these places really well and know the car really well. And especially if he's with the same organization, because Andretti Autosport really knows how to get the job done in Indy Lights.
0: You know, the thing about it as well, uh, Joey, and and I'll I'll echo what you're saying, because we have a a number of drivers that I think are primed to move and will not be back next year, meaning Herta uh Yurutchia award and very likely Tealitz will not be back next year. They're they're going to do whatever they can to get into the Verizon IndyCar Series. And I think that with Anderson Promotions and Mazda and Cooper doing everything they can to to move Indy Lights forward, I know that there, there's some announcements coming down the pipe pretty soon that are are going to be crucial to to reinvigorating the future of Indy Lights. Nothing I can talk about right now, but it's coming. I'm sure you've had some conversations as well. It's going to open the playing field next year. For a guy like Ryan Norman to take his opportunity to, to jump into the limelight. Yeah, we're going to get some really good pro Mazda drivers coming in. Um, you know, there's probably going to be new drivers coming in from Europe as well. There's We're going to have a good feel, I think, next year in lights. But as the third year driver, and I love the fact that you brought up Kyle Kaiser because not many guys want to stay in any lights for three years, but sometimes that works. It worked for Kyle Kaiser; He was able to get comfortable. Not everybody can roll through and get the timing that Spencer Pickett had, you know, jumping in with. With Hunkos, when a brand new car hit the ground and they hit the mark, and he was able to ride it to the Verizon Indy Car Series and the scholarship, third year could be a charm for Ryan Norman. I hope he comes back because I think I think if he does, the series will be right for the pick and for a guy with three years of experience. And as you said, staying with his organization, Andretti Autosport.
1: Yeah, I mean, he reminds me of of a lot uh, a lot of Kaiser, obviously, as I mentioned. But I look at the the fact that when you look at the road to Indy as a whole. There are some guys that that it's interesting to see the paths and the parallels, right? Like you look at at Anthony Martin and Parker Thompson back in USF, and where are they now? And you you go forward and you look at Aaron Tielitz and Potovo Ward. I mean, they were battling for a Pro Mazda championship just a couple of years ago, and here we are looking yeah. at it. And Tielitz is on the back foot right now, unfortunately. Um, just some of the circumstances not within his control before the seat during the before the season really kicked off um, essentially in practice at St. Pete. And you look at Pato, goes to sports cars, does some good stuff in PC class and wins himself a Rolex in the 24 hours of Daytona, comes back and somehow he's he's the force to be reckoned with right now in in Indy Lights. It's just the parallels are so dynamic. And Ryan Norman fits somewhere in between there because he's just going to be a guy that continues to grow and learn. And I hope that fans get a chance to, to know who this guy is because, A, he's a really good driver, and B... He's got a good personality, quiet, but a good personality, and has got a really good understanding of how to take care of a car and bring it home and also provide good feedback for engineers, his engineers. So I think that moving forward, as we had mentioned, I think he'll be one to watch.
0: That's fantastic insight. I, I like the I like the talk of the parallels and how some of these drivers have kind of come up through the ranks together. And you're right, Anthony Martin and Parker Thompson, both single car efforts in their opening year in USF 2000. They went head to head for Cape, and then you've got Teelitz and and Award going head to head at Team Pelfrey for the Pro Mazda Championship a couple of years ago. A lot of great, lot a lot of great stuff. So, folks, this is episode number eight of the Road to Indy Insider Podcast. Again, my name Rob Howden. It's the Iowa Breakdown. My guest today, Joey Barnes from motorsportstribune.com, the editor and publisher. You've also read a lot of his uh, content on IndyCar.com as well. We've talked practice. We've talked uh, pre-race. Let's jump into qualifying and kind of jump through it really quickly, Joey. Um, You know, they did the reverse order on the points with the, the lower point guy going first. As things happened, you know, I'm down there for IndyCar radio. As soon as they come out of the car, I'm talking to them and it was interesting that both Bellardi drivers emerged from their cars and they were decently happy with the runs the way the cars were the speeds just didn't stack up and you know once they got out of the car and saw where they were even though they liked the way the car felt on the track sometimes comfortable isn't fast
1: exactly right exactly 100% agree i how often do we hear whenever a driver is saying well you know this doesn't feel good yeah but you're fast so you know shut up <laughs> shut up and drive you know just keep going you're gap in the field uh, I think it was yeah. interesting because I caught Santi afterwards walking back to the, to the transporter. And once he saw the times, like you said, he just, he wasn't exactly thrilled with where he ended up. And he, he had mentioned to me, you know, we're always chasing the Andretti guys. I don't understand. I don't know what they found, but we're always chasing the Andretti guys. And, you know, that that's paraphrasing essentially. I wonder what's going on there and like what Andretti have found, because for my money, I'd be hard-pressed to to say that Santi's been the one driver out of this entire field that's probably drove the best since the start of the season. I don't know. I know he's in his third year. He's a two-time series runner-up. But when I look at how he's handled things, whenever they're not going well, and I look at, at everything that he's endured over his career in Indy Lights, I think that this is the best Santi that we've ever seen. And I think that he's driven better than probably anybody in the series to this moment because the Andretti car at this point, allows you to make a few mistakes, whether it be in the race and then qualifying and make up for it in the race. And with Bilardi, you've got to pretty much be flawless right now. And Santi has been near flawless. Unfortunately, they just kind of missed it in the setup in Iowa.
0: Well, here's my comment on that. And the interesting thing about racing is the fact, I think we all know that engineers are working their butts off to try to find that sweet spot. And whatever you do find, I don't know whether it's in dampers or whatever they've got dialed in, they Andretti's found something. There's no doubt about it. And you can't take anything away from uh, Kent Boyer and Tim Neff at Bellardi Auto Racing. Those guys have won a lot of races as engineers on Indy Lights cars. We know that with Santi, with Rosenquist, with Veach, uh, you know, with Thielitz. they won a lot of races over the last number of years. And again, somebody just finds something. So let's parallel it to the Verizon IndyCar series where there's a ton of talented engineers and we go to Iowa and I mentioned it a lot on the IndyCar radio broadcast when it came to grip, there were the haves and there were the have nots, right? Yeah. Penske found it Andretti found it and Schmidt Peterson had found the grip. Uh, guys like Carlin, AJ Foyt Racing and Harding Racing did not. And so there's the have or have not. So whatever, whatever and has found, we don't know about it. That's not our expertise to find, to know what they found, but And I'll echo what you say about Santi. He's now feeling the frustration. Here's a guy that could have won the championship two years ago if it were not for uh, a teammate slowing down to let one guy get through and get extra points. First and foremost, that could mentally kill another driver. Last year, issues on track, didn't get off to a great start, has a better finish, comes up short again, second place in points. We've watched him mature over the last two years, three years. Uh, I remember first meeting him at St. Petersburg when he came to run pro Mazda, and he was a, kind of a young kid and a, a good kid, but man, you miss a couple of championships, Joey, with an opportunity to immediately go to the Verizon IndyCar series. That's going to harden you. And I think when we get to the very end of the broadcast, we'll talk about how he was at the, uh, at the press conference. This kid's just, I want to say, is at the end of his end of his leash to a certain extent with just having to be chasing this championship. Would you agree?
1: i agree 100%. I, I've told a few people for a while now that Santi reminds me of a raw version of Juan Montoya, and it's because he's got that fiery passion first and foremost, and he can just drive the wheels off of it. And, you know, I look at somebody like Santi, and, and like you said, those two runner-up finishes, the way – it's not just the fact that they're runner-up finishes, but it's also how they happen. It could crush a guy, and for him to – to come through that and come out the other side, I think that this is only going to make him 10 times better at the next level. And all I can say is, is, when you see when you see guys like Zachary Klayman DeMello right now, kind of, in my opinion, maybe rush themselves to the Verizon IndyCar Series and not take that extra year to season themselves, to get themselves in a championship mix and some guys feel that they're ready, and some guys have the talent, obviously, now to get to the next level. But I think that there's not, there's something to be said for the fact that you season yourself and you, you run with these guys and you get yourself built up mentally because, you know, the, the IndyCar series, there are pit stops. There is more feedback. There is more about what you feel in the seat, and it is more on you and fuel saving and a lot of data. Things that Zach Veach said, man, I had to learn how to do these things. I didn't ever mm-hmm. have to worry about these things in Indy Lights. So I think it's important that you try to get all those other bugs worked out in Indy Lights because when you get to that next level, you're going to have 10 million other things going on. And I think for Santi to go through those things, those quote-unquote little things, I guess you could say, uh, that aren't so little, I think that's just going to make him 10 times the better driver when he gets up to the IndyCar series soon.
0: You know, I, Joey, I think there are people that, uh, that can slam Santi pretty easily and put him down and get upset about the way he handles defeat. Um, I know there's a lot of team owners out there that don't want a driver who's happy uh, if he's lost, you know, they want a guy to be pissed off and throwing something because they don't, you know, they want a guy that wants to win all the time. And I think the funny thing about, I will to say funny, the intriguing thing I think about, about Santi, I've been able to work closely with him over the last four years. I, I, I really like Santi. He's a, he's a guy that feels his emotions to the fullest degree. When he's in a great mood, he's hilarious. He's funny. He's quirky. He's in a great mood. When it's not going well, he's grumpy and he's pissed off. And I don't. I think there's lots of race car drivers that have been like that over the over the last number of years. I don't. You know. I don't think if you, if you talk about a guy like Dale Earnhardt, I don't think he would be happy. Second, he's pissed off, and he's going to be a. You know. He's going to be grumpy at at a, at a press conference. So, I think people are asking too much sometimes out of these younger guys that they need to be you know, they need to have the the khakis and the, the white polo shirt and be perfect all the time. Because I think that, especially when you talk about this level of the sport, these guys aren't paid drivers. They are working their tail off. They got lots of a t- ridiculous amounts of money. Let's put it that way. Ridiculous amounts of money invested in what they're trying to do. And they're trying to make sure that they, you know, they, they prove what they're worth to the people that are putting money up front of them. So when, when a guy like Santi comes into the Press conference having finished third, and he's not in a good mood. He's a bit of a dick. I'm okay with it because you know what? It's, I'd like to see him not be quite that bad, but you know what? There's so much on the line here. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna slam anybody for real emotion. Yeah. I just can't do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I agree 100%. I, I know this is, this seems like the agree affair here, but I, I think that
0: somebody, you know, we're, on the, we're on the same page. It's okay. Yeah. We get it. I
1: mean, with, with Santi, you know, this, the one thing that sticks out for me is he's the second most popular figure sports figure in his country of Uruguay outside of an MMA fighter, he's it. And he's in Indy Lights. I think when you also look at this from a full sport perspective, fans aren't going to be attracted to robots that, you know, they're the suit and tie, the corporate guys that just say the right things. And yeah, well, we finished fifth. All shucks. I want a guy that's yeah. going to sit there and say something, say how he feels, you know, give me some edginess. Hey. If I'm a team owner, I like that because you know what, that's going to fire up the rest of my team. And I understand that there's that's a fine line because sometimes they can say things and it, it upsets people and that sometimes it fires them up. At the same token, if you've got the right infrastructure in place, there's no reason why you couldn't have a guy like this on your team. Because at the end of the day, this is a results driven sport, just like any sport usually is. And I think that somebody like Santi can deliver those results, especially when you give him everything that he needs. I, right now, you know, like you said, with the Bilardi engineers, what they've done over, over time has proven that they're really good at what they do. And they've got a lot of data to go back to. And whatever Andretti have found certainly have gotten them a step above everybody else. But take nothing away from the guy that's in that seat, because he is definitely giving everything he's got, and he's doing it with, essentially not as much as what Andretti is giving Pato and, and Colton right now in that championship fight.
0: So enough. yeah, so true. So true. So uh, we're trying to talk about qualifying. This tangent of Rutia is essentially the uh, road to in- the insider podcast uh, equivalent of a dog seeing a squirrel. We kind of, <laughs> we went off on a bit of a tangent there, Joey, but it's okay. Well, let's bring it, let's bring it back to qualifying. We talked about Bilardi and their issues. The Franzoni uh, two lap run really caught me off guard uh, sh- with Victor showing the speed that he did in qualifying simulations and throughout the entire practice session for him to go out there and admit that, you know, he, he admitted that he just didn't flat footed it all the way around. just wasn't comfortable, but I think that plays to the experience, maybe a little bit of the, uh, the confidence in the setup. Probably also had the thought of, Hey, I don't want to wreck this car. You know, I don't want to knot it up in qualifying because I lose it and I can't pay for it because we all know that, that, the victor's the guy without the budget. He's kind of, you know, going from race to race with the scholarship that he has, and, and Hunkos is there for him. I, I obviously I'm surprised he wasn't able to qualify better. He was well off, a couple miles an hour off the pace, just not flat footing it around. Uh, but I, you know, in the back of his mind, it was probably like, you know what? I'll start seventh. If I got a good car, I'm going to the front, anyways.
1: Yeah, I mean, plus, I mean, let's be honest here with with how tough this championship battle's been. If you've got Pato and Colton starting on the front row, and how tight this racing has been. Maybe starting seventh isn't a bad thing, right? I mean yep. but I look at this and, and you're absolutely right. I think the the budget definitely is a thought because he's one of those guys that he's got absolute amazing talent, not necessarily the budget to pay for anything. You know, if he runs into a situation like T. did at St. Petersburg, we not we might not be seeing Victor race next week uh, in Toronto. So yeah. I, I think when the other thing though that, that kind of I was thinking about is Maybe they just didn't make a lot of adjustments to prefer qualifying and the track temp caught them out because temperatures, even though they were relatively cool for July in Iowa, I think you looked at it and from a standpoint of maybe we don't touch it. And we saw that maybe the humidity build up a little bit, the ambient build up a little bit, and that enabled the track. And I think maybe that just got away from them for that two
0: lap run. Well, and you know, he, he would have been out there on the opening lap getting a feel for the car. And if it wasn't there, there's no sense in, like like I said, no sense kind of rolling the dice. In the end, uh, it ends up being all Andretti. And as it happened, man, they were, you know, they were the top four positions. Pato on the pole, Colton second, Ryan Norman third, and, Andretti, I rather, uh, Dalton Kellett in fourth. The Andretti guys obviously nailed the setup for this racetrack. They leveraged all four streams of the data they get after every session. Uh, and Pat Pato Award taking the poll. And I think another thing about this, crucial to get that bonus point when we're thinking about going to Portland for the finale.
1: Yeah, I think what was so surprising to me is that he ran a sub-22nd lap on the on his first lap. Nobody else did that. Yeah. I, it was incredible to me that, that he was able to get that much speed out of that car that quickly. But I kind of going back to – I don't want to get on another tangent here, but kind of going back to that year-off <laughs> experience that he essentially had where he didn't get to play with Indy Lights like everybody else – he had to deal with a different kind of car, a heavier car. And I think that's part of the benefit is, is even though you don't get that oval experience necessarily, you come here after going through the whole year with a heavier car. And I think it really plays off uh, and pays dividends whenever you're going to any track on the Indy light schedule.
0: Episode number eight, ladies and gentlemen of the road to Indy insider podcast is the Iowa breakdown. My name's Rob Howden joined by my guest, Joey Barnes, the editor and publisher of, of motorsportstribune.com. Let's jump into the race. I'm going to go through kind of a bit of a run-through of the, of the overview of the race for those of you who watched it or maybe did not. Uh, Joey can all let Joey hop in here. Uh, bottom line is, out of the box, Greenfly flies. Good jump for Pato Award, and for all intents and purposes, goodbye. He runs off to the race win. The real star of lap number one was here. And not surprising, this guy... If, he need, if anybody needs to be aggressive, Santi can get the job done. He drifts up in front of his teammate Aaron Teals to the green. Something I think must have happened to Norman, whether he missed a shift or whatever happened on the bottom side. <laughs> Santi rolls the top groove around both Kellett and Norman, gets the run out on cold tires, dives to the inside of um, Herda in turn number three, takes over, drifts the car back up, takes over second, that opening lap, I kind of figured that was going to be about five laps worth of excitement, but Joey, Santi just said, you know what? Um, i got to go to the front, and here I come. Yeah, I, I
1: was really stunned, and I was kind of wondering, okay, is he going to have enough to, to get Pato here? Because, I mean, Pato, yeah, like you said, he set sail uh, right there on lap one, but, I mean, Urudio was just coming. I, he didn't care who it was that was in front, of him, who was next to him, whether you're a teammate or not, and he barrels through there and, and catches everybody out. It could I, I was really stunned that he was able to pull that off. Like you said, on cold tires, essentially. I think the the thing that I was really shocked by though, is that we didn't see that pace continue to increase necessarily to close the gap on Pato. I mean, we saw that gap kind of increase itself. I think it blew up to a well over four seconds there at the middle point, later stages of the race. And, Next thing you know, we got Colton and we got we got Ryan Norman, and they're still staying kind of relatively close to Santi and and really starting to bring the heat towards the middle part of the race.
0: Yeah, I think what it came down to was, I think, in his mind, Santi said, my only chance for a podium or a race win, I got to be an absolute bonsai machine out of the box. I think that I think that was his concept, because from there, after he settled into second, the field pretty much remained single file for the rest of the race. There were some battles further back. First off, uh, Aaron Tillis was trying to get by Franzoni, was trying to run the low line, but Franzoni was good up top. Fast forward a little bit, Franzoni tried the same thing on Kellett, getting all the, you know, the car to work on the bottom, diving into the, you know, over the, the bump in one and diving to the bottom of the racetrack. And, and again, not able to make that happen either. Um, you know, we can talk about that mid-pack stuff before we jump into the the Urrutia Herda battle, Joey it seemed to me, and I, you know, I talked to Aaron Tielitz. He set the fastest lap of the race. He ends up finishing seventh, not able to move forward at all after going to the tail of the field. Sets fast lap of the race. But if you watch, go back and watch it, he was able to roll right back up. And the minute he got close, you know, and it happens in any formula car racing, but just the arrow wash, you know, you, they lost the air off the front of the car and it would push up. And then you, they had the in car with, with Aaron. And if you watch it, there's a number of times Where he is feeding a ton of wheel, it would have. It seemed like you know he had that understeer on the way in, the snap oversteer mid corner. He confirmed it. He goes, Rob, it was when I had to push it hard. It was a bit of a beast, but he goes, I turned the second fast lap of the race. And the bottom line is, with this seven car field and the quality we have, it's just hard to move forward.
1: Yeah, you know that's kind of an enigma for me. I I look at this situation with Tealitz, and it's like the guy can't catch a break. Like he went on a nice little run. Earlier in the season, the 4-3-2, and it looked like, well, if you did the numerology, the one's going to be the Freedom 100, yep. and then they had that gearing issue. You move forward, and you think, okay, well, outside of Road America, you've really got to look at Iowa because Tealitz is a really well-rounded driver, right? He's great at roads. He's great at streets. He's, he's great at ovals. And I, I honestly thought that he was going to be somebody to watch. I, I thought the curious thing, talking about this mid-pack battle, is – I mean, yeah, Victor ultimately got the jump from seventh up to sixth, uh, and and teal is fading their back. But I was really shocked to see nobody really try that that Mateus Lace line that we saw last year. Like I like on a on a heavy note. Uh, you know, Carlin obviously not racing this year in Indy Lights, but they were on a three race win streak at Iowa. And you look at, at what they were able to do, uh with some of the drivers that they did, Mateus really taught me that you could push that outside line and really do a good job of conserving the tires and kind of a, a backwards reflection of that. Santi, I remember last year was kind of that guy that came on late in the race. I was really stunned to see that Santi made that jump early in this race instead of maybe trying to, to babysit those tires. Some, and I guess going back to it, we didn't really have the notorious comers and goers that we had been accustomed to seeing the last few years.
0: Yeah, it, it, let's, if we jump into the battle for second with you, Urtia, and Hurta, I think you're right. Because uh, for the first probably 10 laps, maybe 15, I think, uh, Santi was running that higher line, that midline. You're right. Nope, Nobody went as high as, as Lace did last year. And I was surprised, too, somebody didn't get up there. And just I, I'm surprised like a, like a Franzoni or a T just, just didn't hang up there take care of those tires, take care of those tires and then, and then attack. But um, Santi was up there for a long time. And then I think finally he went, you know what? The rest of this race is def- defense for me. Once they got into that, you know, lap 50 to lap 60, where the tire started to nose over and they were on their way down. Uh, he went under defense mode and that's, I think it, it came down to you know, a spotter race. I'm sure they were on the radio with, with Santi telling him exactly where hurt it was every corner. You could see that he run a high line and, and chop down and, and it was all defense at that point for Santi, and and for me, it looked to it looked with about what ten to go, like he was going to be able to hold off Herda. Colton made a really strong run at the pass, and he got, I think it was a pretty big chop for Santi to block. Uh, and and Colton fell well back, and I thought we're done, this is it. And boom, all of a sudden, in came uh, Colton again, got a couple of really good runs, got the toe down the back straight, and in the end. Colton made a pretty aggressive and a strong move to the inside of turn three and then pulled the full slide job, right? Got to kind of let the car drift up, got off the throttle a little bit to keep uh, Santi high so he couldn't do the over-under, and boom, pulled away after that. Yeah,
1: I was really shocked, too, to see Santi change his lineup after he had gotten that first couple of runs defensed from Colton that, that he just went straight to the bottom there on one of those, I think it was through turns one and two, if I recall, right before Colton made that, that bonsai move there. And it really just, his car just got really draggy and just really slow going through that corner. And that's, I thought that's really what enabled Colton to get that really good run to make that dive move. Um, But I mean, essentially you look at this and because Pato at the time had cleared so far out ahead, when once Colton got around Santi, in some ways, it was just cleaner air. And he was able to really gap Santi after that.
0: Yeah, and it was, you know, Colton told me afterwards, he goes, yeah, no, I think with a couple more laps, I probably would have been able to close up to Pato. And I, I kind of want, I didn't do. I didn't say it on the radio, but I wanted to say, listen, I'm pretty sure Pato was just, he was out there managing it. And of course, I talked to Pato right afterwards on IndyCar Radio and it was, hey, I got to the four and a half seconds and my guy said, hey, you're four and a half. Every five laps, they were telling me where I was. If I was four seconds back, I moved it up to five. If it was five, I let it go back down to four and a half. I think, I think Pato was just—you know—he was on his game. He was Pato Award. He made it happen, uh, and really with with clean air, he was just able to really manage the race from start to finish. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's it's really sh- this is the kind of this is the kind of drive that Pato needed, right? I mean, you look yeah. at the, the four race run uh, win run that that Colton went on. From the Indy GP, the Freedom 100, the first race at Road America, and Pato really hadn't had a chance to get back in it after having a really hot start out of the gate of the season, and I, I thought he needed this for his championship, and I tell you how crucial that pass was that Colton made on Santi. When Santi's ahead of Colton, the championship leader would be eight points with Colton up. After Colton made that pass, it became three points in, of Colton ahead of, uh, ahead of Pato, excuse me. So... That little five-point swing, when you really look at the framework of this season and how it's really starting to be a mono-e-mono dogfight, by the time we get to the end of this, those five points could be everything that was needed to win this championship for for Colton.
0: You know, we always look back at that pole position or that pass because all you have to do is go back to that season with Gabby Chavez versus Jack Harvey where they tied in points, they tied for race wins, and you had to go to the most second-place finishes to see who was going to win the scholarship. And go to the Verizon IndyCar Series. Every point is crucial. Now, people don't think about those every points at the start of the season. But once we get to the middle part, all of a sudden it's, yeah, I need the pole. Yeah, I want to make that pass because, because that's what's going to happen. Now, in the end, uh, big win for Pato Award. Uh, as uh, Joey said, able to get himself nice and close to the championship heading to Toronto. Colton Herta, a strong run. Even the third would have been one of those championship runs where you think, you know what, I'm not going to roll the dice. He did, moves to second, and as Joey told you, was able to gain uh, those five extra points. Santi Rutia holds on for third spot. Happiness for Herda, happiness, of course, for Pato Award. Santi was not pleased at all uh, in the post-race press conference, but again, as we've already detailed, this is a guy with a lot of passion for the sport, but also you know, with an understanding that, that he's kind of probably living on borrowed time trying to see if he's going to get a chance to ever become a professional IndyCar driver because... His third year in the series, he's got to make those things happen. He's got to impress some people, Joey. And if he can't do it with the scholarship, he's got to impress somebody who's going to say, hey, you know what? As you said, I need a guy with this kind of passion on my team. I don't want someone bland. I don't want someone that can – he's okay with 16th. I want someone who comes off the track unless he's in the top five and he's pissed off.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you also need – to that end – somebody to come in and fire up the boys, right? You know, the boys and girls, when you get back to the shop after they've had, you know, just a top five run, somebody to get in there and motivate them. Because this season, especially the the early part, right? Like you go from, from was it Phoenix to Long Beach to Barber? Or maybe I've got that backwards. And then you go straight into the month of May and straight to Detroit, straight to Texas. And then that week off that you think that we all see as a week off, that you know, it's really a testing week for everybody to get ready for road America. And then you got road America. Yeah. So the real, you go through a good two and a half, three months and it's hard on these mechanics and, and engineers. And I think that to have a guy that has a lively attitude is so important to just keep the morale and camaraderie up. And that's like I said before, I, that's probably why if I was a team owner, that's somebody that I would look at to, to have on my roster.
0: Uh, you know what? You speak volumes of the truth there because the bottom line is, is these guys and gals who are working on these cars day in and day out for that stretch from, you know, before St. Petersburg, all the way to Sonoma, these guys are not at home with their families. They're working their tails off and they are fueled by their drivers, right? They're fueled. If they don't, if they don't like their driver, if they're not passionate and emotional and want to support their driver, they're going to run out of steam. And if their driver has the charisma and if he's, he or she is fiery and just keeps digging in and is a team player Man, you know, well you, I've talked to some of the crew guys up and down the paddock. Some have told me how they just aren't motivated or really don't care to work that hard for the driver because the guy's an ass. But there's there's those who are just like, whatever, I'll do anything for him. And I think, you know, one of the perfect examples, and I and I try to teach this, Joe, you know, I try to talk to the young drivers who come up the ranks, whether it's an F-1600 or wherever they are, and they're pissed off with finishing second. You've got to remember that your mechanic worked his ass off to finish second. And he or she is super happy to be on the podium. You may not be happy because you didn't win, but your crew didn't finish 17th. They finished second. So they're pumped. And the best example I have, we all saw it. And it may be the best thing that came out of, out of James Hinchcliffe, not qualifying for the Indianapolis 500. But when he got out of the car, after he had composed himself in the in the car and, you know, got himself into the mindset, he got out of that car. And his crew, there was guys there that were bawling their eyes out and James the guy who is just a consummate professional with his team, he fist bumps every guy every time he gets out of the car he you, you saw the whole team, him rally the guys around and bring his whole team back around him. That's the kind of driver that every team owner wants and every every mechanic wants to work for.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned him in particular because he's somebody that you know what you see on TV and with the ads and 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 the fun little fun little videos that are out there on the internet dancing with the stars and all that he's about as genuine as it gets the same guy that you would talk to on pit road. And I think to see that, that could have been handled one of two ways. He could have thrown his pit crew under the bus or he could have done exactly what he did. And you know what, if he throws his crew under the bus, I bet you he doesn't win the uh, Verizon IndyCar series race this past weekend at Iowa.
0: I have no doubt. I think they, everybody rallied around each other. Uh, They were in my pit box with IndyCar radio this weekend. And you should have saw those guys, the look on their face, that team, like everyone on that team, uh, when the when the win was done, they were absolutely ecstatic, and they deserve it, man. T- to to go from the the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, uh, again, all, all in all, fantastic weekend, great win for James Hinchcliffe in the in the Iowa Corn 300, but give it up for Pato Award, a big win uh, as well in the Indy Lights race. This is episode number eight. We're almost done here on the Road to Indie Insider podcast. It's the Iowa breakdown. My guest Joey Barnes from the Motorsportstribune.com, the editor and publisher. Joey, let's wrap this thing up with a quick little look towards Toronto. I'm going to try to knock out another one of my preview podcasts on, on Thursday night so people can listen coming into the race on Friday. You know what? We go from this bad fast seven, eighth mile oval to, you know, what an iconic 30-plus year street race north of the border. People in Canada love racing. They are gonna they're gonna go ape. <laughs> ape for uh for james when he gets back you throw robert wickens in there but when we talk any lights we got seven drivers who are ready to go battle it on the streets we got pro mazda coming back out parker thompson's going to try to go for the wins in his home turf like he did last year usf 2000 if you have nobody know obviously we're losing some drivers alex barrow will not be back kyle kirkwood in the hot seat the driver's seat to win the championship but man i'll tell you toronto just such a such an awesome event
1: yeah, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see with that kind of a gap just from a mental perspective how Kirkwood handles it. I know he's going to go in and he'll say all the right things and you know he's going to say all the right things. Well, we're just going to focus it take one race at a time, the typical PR stuff that you're supposed to say, but I think it's <laughs> it's important for somebody like Kirkwood and especially with Cape, like everything's there for the taking and right now just based on all the work they've been able to do for this entire season he is his own worst enemy from here on out. These next seven, eight races, whatever they are, and I think it's crucial that he gets a good jump on everybody in Detroit or in Toronto, excuse me.
0: Yeah, I think the interesting thing is to look at last year. Oliver Askew went for Cape Motorsports, was pretty good there. He was fast. Obviously, Exclusive Autosport was good as well. So they've got a good car. So let's think that maybe Igor Fraga could come into the play. Uh, Daniel Frost will be back for Exclusive as well. Another fast team last year was David Malukas. For BN Racing, does that play well for now Keith Donigan, who's running with BN Racing? Maybe he steps up and challenges Kyle Kirkwood as well for the race win. Now, Kirkwood's in the driver's seat. He can go and probably, you know, he can bang out a bunch of fifth place finishes and win this championship, but there's still a lot up for grabs in USF 2000.
1: I'll tell you uh, just briefly, uh, somebody that I do like for this race, uh, when I look at it, I mean, I like Kalen Frederick, probably do something out of Pabst, but I also look at somebody like. You know, Donegan was really good at Road America after that little switch that that went on. And I kind of wonder, like, okay, Rasmus is the guy that he put a really good move on there late. So maybe Rasmus mentally just isn't quite ready to be in a defensive type role. So I don't see him as a guy that if it's late in the running and he's in the lead, I think maybe you're going to look at somebody that maybe psychs himself out mentally just based on what you saw. And these are kids, so it's easy to do, right? but I think that um, there's a good learning experience for Rasmus. Maybe he can rebound from that. I hope he can rebound from something like that and maybe apply it because we see that the speed is there. So he might be a dark horse for Toronto, but looking ahead, I mean, I, I'd have to probably lean it towards somebody out of Patch. Calvin Ming comes to mind, Lucas Cole, as well as Kalen Frederick.
0: Hey, yeah, you got three very veteran drivers, you know, obviously Lucas Cole in his third year in USF 2000, Calvin Ming and Kalen Frederick in their second year. Think about Rasmus Lint is the fact the young Swedish driver hell, before coming to cars it's his first year in cars. That's the, it's the transition I think that's giving him. I don't. Know, not, no issues. He's learning like crazy. This guy comes from international level world championship karting. You know they know how to block. Trust me uh, in, the, in in international karting. But he's being smart and not making the mistakes that some young drivers do. Block and you get into a wreck and. We saw the wreck last year with, with Kyle Kirk, rather with uh, Oliver Askew getting caught up with Alex Barron and David Malukas. Those leaders took each other out and that allowed Parker Thompson to roll through to get the win. So I, I like it. I think there's a lot of guys that will be able to challenge Kyle Kirkwood in USF 2000. Now, let's jump to ProMaza really quickly. Coming in with a lot of momentum, of course, uh, Parker Thompson with the point lead. He likes this racetrack. It's Canada. He'll be motivated. The team's jacked up and ready to go. He won here last year. So Parker's obviously one we're going to watch to be fast out of the out of the gate. But, you know, I think you'll probably agree. Here's the big one. Can BN Racing do what they did uh, at Road America? Can David Malukas keep this momentum up coming into this event?
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he was a kid that, that he even said, this is pretty much a home race for me at Road America because he grew up in Chicago. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because if he's able to, this championship is still very much in the realm of possibilities for him. I mean, I know he was kind of somebody that nobody really looked at before the season. All of us were looking at Parker Thompson and Renus VK and Oliver Askew and Robert McGinnis and, and Stingray Rob and Carlos Kuna, ton of those guys. And we kind of overlooked being racing and what they could bring to the table. And they didn't necessarily have a lights out start to the year. They were just kind of hanging around, but Buy that they were able to jump on some people, come Road America, and I think when you really look at this thing moving forward, if he starts to click off some good runs, and if you were to really upset the Apple card and and take out Parker Thompson off of that top pedestal spot in in Canada, because you know Parker's going to come ready to play after winning both you or winning USF last year, I think mm-hmm. that's something to watch. Uh, that kicker here is David malucas to me has never struck me as a guy that can just own a a street course he was really steady really stern in in St. Pete but I look at this and I'm thinking Renus VK when I'm looking ahead at at a street course you know Carlos Kuna definitely he's got a got some good momentum rolling can he do something to maybe overtake his own teammate and then maybe make a run at Parker Thompson but the guy that I'm really looking at when I'm looking ahead is somebody like Oliver Askew who really needs a good run. I mean, he being the reigning USF 2000 champion comes in, he, he knows the track like Parker does. And I think it's important that him and Cape really get off to a good run because if there's somebody that just needs a little bit of luck, I think it's him.
0: Yeah. Oliver and Cape motorsports have been kind of struggling for overall grip with the PM 18 since the start of the season, but you talk about David Malukas, and I think the interesting thing about David is coming up through the karting ranks, here's the guy that was the national champion, number one plate holder in X30 Junior in the SuperCart USA Pro Tour, goes to Europe to the X30 World Championships and wins the World Championships. This guy knows how to win, but he's also he's also got himself into some, tru- into some trouble. We've seen him, of course, the wreck last year, uh, battling with uh, Alex Barron. Alex was not pleased about that. They, they probably forced the issue too much. He gets into uh, an issue earlier on this year, then collects and kind of gets into Harrison Scott on the Oval at Lucas Oil Raceway. I believe he's on probation right now as well. That may change the mindset for David. Now, when you're on probation, they're worried about you connecting with anybody. You didn't have to worry about that at Road America. Qualify on pole, run away. (laughs) There's there's no issues. There's no issues getting into anybody and and playing with your probation at that point. If he can do the same thing here at Toronto, then he's going to be okay. Otherwise, he may—if he qualifies fourth or fifth or third, he's going to have to play nice because he knows if he gets into another issue and falls a foul of uh, the race director, he's going to find himself parked for the weekend, and that would definitely change the championship in a big way. But I do like what you're saying. you needs a big weekend. Rinas VK has got to come out strong. And here's a kid that uh, we'll see what he can do. He was very good last year as a rookie. You know, was kind of right there all year long battling it out for the championship uh, with Oliver Askew. He can't let this minor setback or wherever they are now change his mindset. He's got to stick with it, stay focused. Renus needs to stay right pinpoint on the championship, keep putting those good races in and see if he can't get himself back into the fight. Let's let's cap off with Indy Lights as uh, we just did a full Iowa breakdown. Joey Barnes, uh, what are your thoughts on the Indy Lights race coming in here? Is it just going to be another Andretti show or do we remember back that Bellardi has always had good pace here. Rosenquist was strong. Veach was strong. Uh, even Sorrales, when they raced for them, was strong. They have had good success here in Toronto.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at somebody like Aaron Tielitz. I know that he ne- hasn't necessarily had everything go his way early on this year, but when I'm looking at somebody that, that has that experience here and, and did really well last year, I'm looking at him, and we talked about him earlier, Ryan Norman got a pretty strong sixth-place finish there last year, and I think that he might be somebody that, although a lot of the attention is on his teammates because of the championship uh, with Pato Award and Colton Herda. and Colton last year retired with a mechanical issue, so maybe he's the factor the unknown there that we're not quite sure about. But I think that when you're looking at somebody that maybe is a sleeper looking into this, if it's going to come somewhere, it's probably coming out of Andretti Autosport, and I would like to think that maybe Ryan Norman is somebody that could get his first win in Indy lights. And it would be a great springboard as we get ready for his home track over there in mid Ohio, the following uh, at the end of the month.
0: What I like about Toronto and I'm sure that none of the team owners uh, or drivers like is the fact that around every corner uh, there's an issue. <laughs> there's a wall, there's a curb you might miss whatever it may be there. This is a track that can bite any driver. And that's why I think kind of blows things wide open because we, you know, obviously one of the things that Colton Hurd has tried to do this year is limit the mistakes he made last year. You know, he's he t- touching walls here, touching walls there. You can do that in Toronto if you if you hang it out too much, you tap a wall, you're done. And I think that's the thing that's, that's really to me, that's the dark horse. That's the that's the variable when you come to Toronto. There's no hanging a wheel here, hanging a wheel there. In that track, it, it's, it's they repaved. I know they, I think they've repaved some new areas of the track this year i'm not i haven't confirmed which areas yet but once we get there we'll see what how everything's laid out that's the variable to me it's the fact that this track can bite anybody at any time and has been good all year long you know they're going to dial the setup in but look for Bilardi to I, I think you look for Bellardi to come back and find that magic they've had before yeah
1: i, I like how you mentioned that real quick about the, the paving uh, colton heard of talking to him after iowa He sat there, and he that was one of the first things on his mind when I asked him about Toronto. He's like, well, I believe they've paved, repaved the front stretch and maybe part of of the first section with Turn 1. And he's like, but I don't think they messed with the curbing. And it's interesting because I recall that curbing being kind of a trouble spot for for a few guys in IndyCar a couple years ago. And so when I look at this and you look at how it transitions with Indy Lights and how aggressive these guys are running these cars and how much they're trying to get every ounce of it, I think that that first sector – is going to be so tricky especially turn one trying to get through there correctly because I mean, especially if if you've got Pato and, and Colton really duking it out because that right there would be for the championship lead essentially just that position swap alone I think it could present some interesting uh, situations and somebody like Santi Arudia certainly wants to take advantage of that because he's sitting third in the championship he's not that far back but he's far enough back that maybe he needs a little bit of luck to happen because you know these guys have stretched a little bit in front of him just with recent performance so it'll be interesting what happens this weekend
0: if indeed they redid the front stretch i'm hoping they don't touch the curbing on turn one because i think that's iconic for that racetrack the fact that it's that big run wide run down into the corner as long as they've got, as long as they fix the washboard into the braking zone, because <laughs> watching the, uh, watching the US, the light USF 2000 cars porpoise back and forth, bouncing through that braking zone, my, it's absolutely crazy. All right. We are done, ladies and gentlemen. Episode number eight of the Road to Indie Insider podcast. Again, my name, Rob Howden, joined by Joey Barnes from motorsportstribune.com, a fantastic website for so much information, uh, when it comes to. Uh, the road to Indy, indie car, and other forms of the sport. Uh, Joey, this is the time of the, in the, uh, the podcast where we give you the opportunity to kind of talk about the website itself, how to contact you, how to follow you on social media. Let's talk just really briefly about motorsportstribune.com. It's your baby. Um, obviously a passionate project because it's just become such a wealth of great information and content for racing fans.
1: Uh, I certainly appreciate the kind words on that. Um, uh, so motorsports tribune, um, uh, Roughly a three to three, four-year-old company. And a lot of us are just a bunch of young riders. And we've had some freelance opportunities built off of this. Uh, A lot of us don't really get too much out of it in terms of financial backing. But what we do is really good quality work. And we get a lot of these guys seen at the next level. And I think that's so crucial, especially when you're wanting to build for a younger audience. We're trying to really relay these things out to you. And we're trying to also show respect for the sport. And hopefully get that older audience built into it. But um, yeah, social media for Motorsports Tribune is at Motorsports Trib on Twitter. And on on Facebook, it'll be facebook.com slash Motorsports Tribune. And for me personally, at Joey Barnes 85 on Twitter is where you can find me. And yeah, we got a really good group of guys. We cover everything from ARCA to NASCAR, IndyCar, Road to Indy, all three levels of the Road to Indy, and uh, Formula One and even Formula E. So we're trying to dabble a little bit in everything and we've really started to build ourselves up and hopefully we'll just continue to grow moving forward and do a really good job with the staff we've got
0: you know joey as a guy uh who has had three magazines over the last 20 years uh, eCardynews.com, i had news.com for a while before al craig had passed and we, we shut that down i know what it what it takes to put something like this together and how much, how many man hours it takes. And, and uh, I'll tell you, I'm proud of what you've done. You've uh, you've built a great website and all I would tell anybody who is listening uh, to this podcast is the fact that when you're, you know, if you've got your little drop down on your browser, where there's websites that you go to, where you want to pick up information, read just really good content, motorsportstribune.com. Make sure you put that on, on your bookmarks because as Joey said, there's a lot of great young writers there who are, are doing this, for passion. They're not getting paid. They're working their tails off. It's all about passion. Uh, So make sure you log that in. Bookmark it, motorsporttribune.com. That is the website you want to go to, folks. And it's a fantastic one. We'll, of course, have links and everything when we send this thing out uh, over my social media. But Joey, thank you so much for joining me, man. It's the first of many, I hope. Uh, Of course, I'm just getting rolling. Episode number eight of this podcast. I know you're going to be doing one yourself down the line, I hope. And I'll be a, uh, a guest anytime you want me. But thank you so much for joining me here tonight.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It was definitely a lot of fun, and I look forward to what's to come.
0: There you go, ladies and gentlemen. We are done here on the Road to Indie Insider podcast on behalf of Joey Barnes. My name is Rob Howden. Bye for now.